We spoke of plays of St. Petersburg, formerly called Leningrad, and before that, and before that. What was the name of that place among the original tribal peoples of the region? The area was dug out by Peter the Great to form canals from the rivers and nearby lakes and springs, so that a northern replica of Venice, based upon the myths, the history, and the dreams of Peter the Great and his people throughout the entire region, might have a city on the sea, yet filled with water, running freely in the summer months, frozen into ice in the winter and skated upon its beautiful, smooth surface, the many months of the cold, historic winter. Akhmatova was very devoted to St. Petersburg as she watched friends leaving, colleagues leaving, due to argument, warfare, poverty, politics. She was aware of a part of her that wished to go and remain in one of the places that seemed politically safe or spiritually safe or physically safe from famine or disease. And yet on the next outbreath, she would realize, no, I am to stay here in this place. On your next in-breath, and the place of holding within your lungs and soul and heart of hearts in your incarnation. In that moment between the in-breath into the out-breath, where is your place? Where is place for you this moment? Lived with such courage and love that every moment which you are privileged to call life, is in gratitude and in a noble alignment of the virtues possible within you. Let us pray and practice in this way, every breath, in all the places in which we inhabit grace in our varied incarnations across the earth at this time. Just as she stated, quoted the other day from the poem, A Land Not Mine, still. She ends that poem, I cannot tell if the day is ending, or the world, or if the secret of secrets is inside me again. In another poem called Seaside Sonnet, she states, And the voice of eternity beckons, with unearthly irresistibility, and over the blossoming cherry trees, the crescent moon pours radiance. We who've known cherry trees might have an image of that. We might describe what a cherry tree is like to someone who's not known such a tree. I remember showing a cherry wood box made of the bark of a cherry tree to the late Hopi elder Thomas Banyakin is my Fermina, and explaining that the cherry trees were very beloved in Japan. 
and pieces of bark taken and formed into small boxes. So beautiful. Thomas wondered if the trees were killed to create the boxes. And I found out that most of them created in such a way were from cherry trees which were older and no longer producing or had died. And that rather than wasting the beauty of the bark on the tree now gone, the bark went into another gift, remembered oh, the cherry trees, the blossoms, the ripening fruit, the fruit eaten by a bird, by myself, by my ancestors, by your progeny. We might have a cherry wood box a thousand years in age in a museum in Asia. And I might stop before that box and call to John, darling, look, look at this incredible box, so old. Look at the mood of the bark, the colors, the texture. That box calls to us in eternity, beyond all warfare, to remember a way in which heaven moved through our ancestors, yours and mine, so that breath to breath, heart to heart, soul to soul, we might meet in the places of our current incarnations in order to turn toward eternity in the future to find that secret of secrets able to move through each of us as individuals, to move through us together for the sake of all of creation, all of humankind, all of life, the quality of heaven on earth, the direction which is home for each and all of us. I turned to several different books and figures from healing physicians and shepherds. And I want to note here several of the books about Akhmadova. One is called My Half Century, edited by Ronald Meyer. The other is called Anna Akhmadova, seer and, or sorry, poet and prophet by Roberta Reeder. They're books which are hefty and beautiful and uh, devoted to scholarship and remembrance, to poetry and to um, biography. And I'd like us to turn to several figures historically where when we look toward them, we are trying to remember in a poetic manner a similar noble and elegant concept of virtue in life, not universal in culture, but universal in humanity. Many people turn to the mother of the Buddha or the mother of the being Yeshua or Jesus, the mother Mary or Miriam. And we see through them a vessel of virtue, which allowed something to happen in a woman and a male child so that in us as female and male, 
we were able to live beyond argument, beyond warfare in that love. Whatever this quality of realization present in their lives, it is not important for us to argue theology. Oh, you believe in Buddhism, do you? Oh, you believe in Jesus, do you? Or Mary, do you? What do you believe? It's important turning, asking, is there water from the well for your son and yours, your daughter and yours? Is that water clean and pure and coming from the secret of secrets, able to nourish the thirst of your baby and yours, of his baby and hers, of your elders and that person's elder. The first instinct in us tends to be, in the temporal bodies, a tribalization, allowing anyone else to be the other, other than what we have realized yet. Our lessons are of realization for the receptive or feminine part of us, first in a woman and then the masculine part. Or for a man, the masculine part in us first and then the safety and ease of expressing the feminine vulnerability. For a transgender person seeking a balance of these principles. And then when we feel at ease and can breathe out an allowance or an offering of ourselves to God, we tend to be frightened that what will meet us is not the secret of secrets, but is something vile, violent, other. But in fully letting go, the next moment is still based upon the will of heaven as well as our own free will. And when we allow this to be profound enough, we are answered in the heart of hearts, in the soul, in and in our lives, with a lesson of realization, a harmonic of heaven on earth through who we are. This would be our signature path. And when we abide in this as our home, we begin to be a student of this great mystery, which is very hard to describe in words. No matter what occurs to us in this lifetime, as long as that is our home, there is nothing which can really harm us or take us away from eternity. We're not interested in bowing down to something other than that home. It's very hard then not to judge other people or ourselves, or push them away, or pull them toward us, or turn against them. This ease of receiving the feminine and masculine, and then turning the shadow toward light, and listening to heaven, until all that answers us in the heart and heart, heart of hearts, and the soul embodied through ourselves is beyond all violence. This requires quite comprehensive humility and attention to virtue. I would love the thirst of your son and of your daughter to be nourished by heaven.
then something occurs which is the poetry of the divine. In your great poets, such as Akhmadova, there's a mood of this which is quite universal. She met many people, and, and from all over the world, Robert Frost journeyed to meet her, the American poet, at a gorgeous meeting. I wonder what they said. I know that the two of them were studying the same direction, as we pay attention to the two of them as our common human ancestors. This woman of Russia and the Ukraine, this man of New England and the United States of America, we begin to feel safety resting in their ancestry, turning toward the poetry of our own hearts and souls, embodied in the virtue of ourselves applied to chop wood or pick wildflowers or walk across a field or plant one. We begin to risk becoming the poet, the lyricist of our own autobiography. We embody the song, the musicianship, of our own life force, beyond all warfare, beyond applying violence, beyond receiving violence. Being in the elegance of a noble posture and the quality of moment to moment in gratitude for the privilege of every breath of life, we are serving only that. It's why I chose Akhmadatha rather than a historic saint or figures from various religious traditions. I was aware that for three quarters of a century, she practiced living in this most sacred way. She was very disciplined about it. She knew if I say something too harsh, they might imprison my neighbor. If I don't say anything, I'm contributing to a silence which might cause such violence among my people and all people. So her life was a virtuous prayer and practice of facing the holy, of expressing the study of the poetics of God as a woman, as a human being. I turn to another figure who was introduced to me in my early childhood. My brother, my late brother Michael, whom I adored, came home from school one day and told me, Elizabeth, there's a book you'll be reading in a few years, and he had various opinions about it. He thought it was good, but it was about a girl, so he thought I would be more interested in it than he would be. But it was good, and he was reading it, and so was our cousin Bobby, who was the same age as, as Mike. They were in the same classroom of maybe 20 to 30 students together at our, our small school in Corning, New York. And so the book was called The Diary of Anne Frank, a young woman, young girl woman, who resided in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, very close to the uh, members of my own father's family, the Hin family in Amsterdam and in the Frisian Islands of Tessel, just north of the city. And so... I became aware of the book 
probably three to four years before I read the book in school. So I knew her name, and I asked in front of my parents what, what happened to her. So I was told the bare bones of her story, and I experienced a sense of a girl whose life was moving in a very different direction than the privilege of the life force of mine in my childhood. Aunt Frank had to be hidden away at my age. She wrote in a beautiful diary, and then she was taken away with her family and died during the Holocaust of World War II. When I was given diaries at various times of my life, I was aware that in my next breath, I was not facing a concentration camp. My pen was not moved to write. It's rather that I was aware that I was being allowed to live and did not have the self-importance to write about my life. I had no tragedy I was facing in the next breath and moment, which might take my life and my whole families and my whole neighborhoods and cultures away. So I was looking and listening for a postscript to what happened to Anne Frank. Anyone I ever spoke to about her would tell me that it was a tragedy what happened to her. And I was aware that I was still looking and listening for a larger completion of her biography. So in some of my work, which took me into the Netherlands at various points in my mature years, my middle-aged years, I would walk by the Frank house, which still stands. I was told that the tree behind the house, which she loved very dearly, I believe it was a linden tree, but I'm not certain, I believe it was, uh, was dying. Then I heard that it died, that it was cut down, and it was being used to be made into various items to be um, sent throughout the world and representing sort of the dignity of her, her soul's path for all of humankind. And I was privileged to visit the house and walk through it a number of years ago and then walk along the canal and I would go up into the church nearby her home. She was a Jewish woman, girl woman, and so she was used to hearing the Christian bells of the church. It had been Rembrandt's church, he and his family. So I'm quite familiar with the area. I've probably visited it five times. Still in my study of what happened to Anne Frank. And my beloved was reading his New York Times and Wall Street Journal here in Texas this past weekend. And he handed me a section of the newspaper. And I looked at the top of it and then I started to put it away. And he said, wait, wait. There's a story at the bottom part of the page I thought you might find interesting. So I turned it over and Hannah Pitt Goslar, age 93, friend of Anne Frank, who appeared in her diary. Well, this woman was Anne Frank's close friend, her neighbor, in their childhood. The two girls grew up together. They met in kindergarten. As the war occurred, their lives went in different ways. And this is from the article. 
In her entry from November 27, 1943, Anne told of having a waking nightmare about Hannah. Quote, I saw her in front of me, clothed in rags, her face thin and worn. The eyes were very big, and she looked so sadly and reproachfully at me that I could read in her eyes, Oh, Anne, why have you deserted me? Help, oh, help me, rescue me from this hell. A month later, Anne wrote with worry about Hannah. And is she alive? What is she doing? Oh, God, protect her and bring her back to us. Lise, or Lise, which was her nickname for her friend, I see in you all the time what my lot might have been. I keep seeing myself in your place. The article goes on to tell us that by this time, Hannah Pitgosar and her sister named Rachel, her father, and her maternal grandparents had been taken to a concentration camp. Her mother had died giving birth to uh, a stillborn baby girl earlier, several years earlier. Then in the next few years, still in the middle of World War II, Hannah found that there were some women prisoners who'd been moved to from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen camp, and that these women prisoners might be from the Netherlands. So Hannah went and stood at the side of the fence and called out, this is from the article, is anybody there? The person who answered was someone who'd gone into hiding with the Frank family. This person told Hannah that Anne Frank was alive. So the old neighbor brought Hannah and Anne to the fence together on opposite sides of the fence of the concentration camp. Quote, Hannah soon heard her friend's familiar voice, weakened by illness and malnutrition. At best, she could discern a shadow of her through the fence. And Frank told Hannah that she know that she had nothing to live for, that she no longer had parents. Her father would survive, but she sensed correctly that her mother, Edith, had died in Auschwitz. She asked for food. Hannah solicited scraps of bread from other women in her barrack and stuffed it into a sock. She threw it over the fence, but another inmate stole it. So Hannah's throwing food to her friend Anne. Anne was crying and crying, Hannah recalled years later. Hannah put together another small care package a few days later, which Anne received. It ended up being their final meeting. Miss Croft, Mrs. Pitgosler's co-writer, said in a phone interview. Hannah talked about the incredible solidarity of the women in her barracks who retained their humanity by helping Anne. Soon after this, Anne and her sister Margot died. This piece of another soul like a candle flame in God in light and sound. A friend of Aunt Frank's from age four, three, four, five, has just left us at age 93. With my nearly 70 years of age now myself, exhaling, oh, oh, this is what happened to Aunt Frank. Her friend came to her, 
Anne believed her parents were both deceased, her own parents, and wished to die, had given up. Her father lived. We know her father lived. It's part of how we know her story. Many things he stated over the years where he lived beyond the war. But this quality of what occurred between them is such a deep sense of the remembrance of our ancestors and the quality of our, our gift we have to offer one another at any moment. You, my friend of childhood, you, my neighbor, you who are falling from virtue here, please, you are my relation, get up. Remember the great peace of heaven in your heart of hearts, in your soul, that secret of secrets Akmanova writes of, which existed between Anne Frank and Hannah. Please find this place, find this place. Hannah spoke about Anne Frank for many years, and at the end of the article, she says, Today, everyone thinks she was someone holy, but this is not at all the case. She was a girl who wrote beautifully and matured quickly during extraordinary circumstances. And then she says, Not everyone wants to hear about the Holocaust. It's easier to read Anne's story. There's no way we can hear everything about the Holocaust of World War II, how Leningrad was surrounded. 800,000 people starved to death. We're living at this time where the planet is on fire, heating, icebergs melting, people in distress, people unconcerned. What is happening to our Gaia? We are at a time when Russia and the Ukraine are in a terrible disturbance. Vladimir Putin, a son of Leningrad, whose older brother virtually starved to death and died of typhus during the siege of Leningrad. He's scarred by what happened in his youth and the years before he was conceived by his family. Yet he is of candle flame and of the sound of birdsong in his heart of hearts and soul. May that son of heaven rise up and put down weapons, put them away, and remember to nourish through clean water all the children of the Ukraine, the Crimea, all the regions surrounding St. Petersburg, the beautiful city composed by Peter the Great on the shores of the gorgeous Baltic Sea, the city of Joseph Brodsky, the city of Anna Akhmatova, such a place. In your heart of hearts, may you live from the very center of your heart, the very depth of your soul, so that in yourselves, as you recapitulate your own history, you always listen for eternity through all of the ancestors, 
all that you can remember and not remember, all that we know and don't know, so that that secret of secrets is safe in your heart of hearts, as it was in Akhmadova's. Then as you face the present moment, you are looking for that candle flame and listening for that bird song everywhere, from everyone, always. That is your direction. That is my direction. That is your signature to be revealed and realized. That is your gift back to heaven. That is who you are. That is who I am. And I am not alone while my love is near me. I know it will be so until it's time to go. So come the storms of winter and then the birds in spring again. I have no fear of time for who knows how my love grows and who knows where the time goes.